I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about some key issues surrounding the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, we have with us our Europe and Eurasia program director, Max Bergman. Max, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Andrew. So, Max, as we approach the one-year anniversary of the war in Ukraine, can you give us an update on the current state of the conflict? I mean, we heard the BBC reported last week that the British believe that 97% of the Russian army is now deployed in Ukraine. That's astonishing. Yeah, it really is. And I think it's an indication that what Putin thought was going to be a quote-unquote special military operation, essentially what was sort of a psyop to just sort of march into Ukraine, Ukrainians would fold, the war would be over very quickly, uh, has turned into an existential war, not for Russia, but for Vladimir Putin. And he has thrown everything that he can at Ukraine, including, uh, you know, as you mentioned, the almost all of his uh, active military. Uh, and then I think the critical decision that he had to make in September when after Ukraine went on a massive offensive in the north and in the south in Kherson, was to mobilize the Russian population. So calling men who had previously been con- conscripted when they were 18, 19, but now we're in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, bring that, calling them up. And so that has probably increased Russian manpower by about you know two hundred to 300,000 people. They also lost double that amount of people who fled the country. But that's sort of an indication when you start, you know, reinstating the draft, you're kind of all in. And so I think where we are now, I think the mood is a little bit grim. The Russians are about to go on an offensive or currently uh, uh, the offensive is currently underway. And I think there's concern that that this will not work, not in the sense of, uh, you know, Kiev being in danger and Ukrainian democracy and the Ukrainian state being in danger, but that it will be very difficult to uproot the Russians. Now, that being said, you know, we have underestimated the Ukrainians at every step of the way in this war. And it feels to me a little bit like the summer of last year, where the Russians had been beat back after their initial offensive. They started to focus on the Donbass region like they are now. They were making some incremental gains. And then we saw Ukraine go on the offensive. And I think what we hope to see is that the Russians sort of exhaust themselves, go on this offensive, don't take much ground. Uh, and the Ukrainians are able to hit back and engage in their own counteroffensive. And the Western weapons, the tanks and other heavy weapons that are being provided come in numbers, and that will enable Ukraine to go on the offensive. And so I think that's where we're waiting to see how these next six months really play out, I think, to, to really determine where this is going. But right now, it feels a little ominous because the Russians look like they're, they're gearing up for a new, a new offensive. Max, what do we know about what's going on inside Russia with 97% of its military deployed, with so many being conscripted? It hasn't seemed to really touch the middle class and upper reaches of Russian society yet in terms of their sons going off to war. But what do we know about the mood inside Russia and what's happening with that? Well, I think, uh, you know, there was hope that what we would see is sort of a turn in Russian public opinion. The, the public opinion polling that we've seen demonstrates that there is still stable support for Putin and for the war. In fact, you know, the mobilization has sort of rallied Russian public opinion for the war. Although 
it has increased a, a degree of anxiety. I think there's a clear confusion within Russia about what this war is really about. And when you look at sort of other polling about whether Russians would support negotiations to end the war, there's sort of, you know, very much in favor, which indicates there isn't sort of this, we must, you know, take these four oblasts of Ukraine, which Putin declared as being part of Russia back in September, as sort of being existential to the Russian psyche and Russian state. I do think that Putin has really tapped into the Russian vein of patriotism. They control the media. There's a, a, a intense propaganda being waged. But I think support is also a little bit tenuous because what we're also starting to see is the impact of sanctions uh, are having an effect. And it's not, you know, it's not necessarily catastrophic for the Russian public, but it's the sort of things where you go into your grocery store and you wanted to buy that Western shampoo that was high quality and now suddenly it's not there anymore. And you're having to buy some knockoff or some other shampoo that isn't quite of that quality or there's just a limited supply. So you're starting to th see things essentially get crappier within Russia. They're having real issues with the car industry. And the Russian economy, you know, they're having to sort of triage things they were able to get through last year because of high energy prices and adept economic management. They had built up a war chest, essentially, of a, a big sovereign wealth fund. But all of that's being depleted. And so I think Putin has to be somewhat nervous about public support. And I think, you know, part of what we're sort of seeing is Russia seemingly sort of rush this offensive. They had a different general in charge. They replaced him with uh, Gerasimov, uh, who had been uh, in charge of the Russian military. And it sort of seems like they're trying to sort of just make gains for political purposes. And that indicates to me that there is a sense of concern over over the public potentially turning against the war, especially with casualties of over 100,000, which is really having, will have an impact. Casualties meaning both dead and injured off the battlefield, captured, missing in action, et cetera, correct? Yeah, yes, exactly. And, you know, that's an extremely high number for one year of war. And then you, when you talk about the numbers of people that have fled Russia, it is, it is, it's going to have a real negative impact on the Russian economy, on Russian society. And that is being felt and also on just the economic vitality of the Russian state. You know, the people who are killed or wounded then have to be supported by the state. That's another economic cost that's put on them and leaves real holes in the community. So I, I think that I think there's a, a degree of nervousness in the Kremlin that if they can't show political success, that they could be in trouble. Are they experiencing a brain drain of sorts with people leaving the country? Oh, absolutely. And they had been experiencing that, but it really accelerated with the war. As the war started, you saw, you know, the closing down of legitimate think tanks like the Carnegie Moscow Center uh, and people who worked for that think tank leaving Russia, but IT workers uh, fleeing. And one of the things that we're starting to see is that a lot of companies, especially IT companies, not wanting to have their cadre of male workers in their 20s and 30s potentially being mobilized, sending them abroad to, you know, work from home so that they don't get called up. So we're definitely seeing a, a real brain drain. I mean, hundreds of thousands of people left, I think more than 500,000 to be conservative, uh, left Russia when they announced the mobilization and just they got out wherever they could go, whether that was Uzbekistan or Turkey to Russia's neighboring countries. And, and I think this is going to have a really negative long-term impact on Russia's economic vitality. Wait, you just said that companies are actually sending their workers abroad 
to work from home from abroad so they don't get called up. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, if you have a company and you have a really vital worker who's a 33-year-old male employee, you have to be somewhat concerned that they will get called up and that will hurt their economy. Now, the Russians are also taking various steps to try to prioritize call-ups of people that they consider in in less economically essential fields. So if you're a ta- taxi worker or you're unemployed, you could very well be targeted for mobilization. Now, the mobilization was sort of announced to have ended, but what we're sort of seeing, it's it's sort of on a, on a, on a rolling basis continuing. And while I don't necessarily think Putin will need to announce a big new mobilization, we're just sort of seeing that process play out over the last few months. Max, I want to get to the United States commitment in just a minute. But before we do that, you mentioned gas prices. That obviously has affected Europe. But what's been the European response so far to this war? So I think the European response has been really remarkable. We have a new report out at CSIS looking at Europe's response one year uh, after the war. And look, what everyone has been stressing about is, oh my God, would Europe crack? Would Europe want to negotiate with Putin? Would they show weakness? And what we've seen actually is incredible strength. Now, on the military side, the Europeans have done a lot. They provide a lot of military assistance, not as much as the United States. And frankly, they have much less to give because they've totally underinvested in their military. So when they you know, open up their bins to look at what they have to fight Ukraine. It's just, it's basically already been empty. And so I think they're having that problem now. But then when you look at what they've done on refugees, you know, Europe had a huge refugee crisis prior to this war in 2015 when uh, the Syria crisis broke out. And there was concern about whether Europe would be able to absorb millions of Ukrainians coming in. And they have been able to do that. But then when you look at the sanctions response, I mean, this is what is really remarkable. We had thought, the United States had thought, we were going to have to drag the Europeans kicking and screaming to put sanctions in place because, you know, they're dependent on Russian natural gas, on Russian oil, the Russian energy sector, and all sorts of uh, other Russian products and materials. And the Europeans came out of the gate swinging and actually have been, in some ways, harder than we have been when it comes to sanctions. They have been, they've had the knife between their teeth, and they're about to, uh, attempting to agree on a 10th sanctions package. And this is far different than what happened after 2014 when Russia seized Crimea the first time. Europe did sanctions and they renewed them every six months, but they never strengthened them. And what we're seeing now is Europe constantly tightening the noose on the Russian economy. But more to the point, what they've done on the energy side is just really phenomenal. Where no one, if you had gone back to February 2022 and said Germany in the course of a year is going to completely decouple from Russian gas. You would have said, that's insane. The German economy will utterly collapse. And what we're seeing is that A, that happened, and B, the German economy didn't collapse. And there's a few reasons for this. Number one is that I think we underestimate ourselves. We underestimate that well-functioning democracies that are well-governed, that are responsive to the people, will will do what it takes to get through the crisis. Germany bought a lot of gas. Europeans cut demand by 20%, and then they had a warm winter. So they're going to get through this winter in a really good place and be able to, I think, sustain the lack of dependence on Russian gas indefinitely, and will be well set up for for the next winter as well. And it really, I think, is a testament to Europeans, the strength of European democracy, the willingness of European citizens to to turn the thermostat down, which they've been doing, uh, and then also a little bit of good fortune, which can come into play in, in these situations. But Putin trying to use uh, energy as a weapon has completely failed. 
Max, is that to you, is that the most underreported aspect of this conflict, the European response and how resilient they've been? I think so. And I think that when you start to see countries like Sweden and Finland joining NATO, when you see Germany sending lethal weapons to into a crisis, you know, right now we're, we're so upset with Germany over sort of hemming and hawing over sending tanks to support Ukraine. Sometimes when you need to take a step back and say, we're talking about Germany sending tanks to a war against Russia, that has the, the remarkable uh, shift in European public attitudes has really been something that I think has been slightly underreported. And when that shift happens, when politicians shift their stance, they don't usually go back and forth, right? And, and that's why this is now, I think, bureaucratically baked in, that Europe is on a trajectory to economically decouple, and in fact, it already, already has, and to continuously support Ukraine militarily. Now, there's going to be some issues going forward about whether they will have the money, will they'll have the revenue, uh, Ukraine membership, the EU. There's lots of lots of other issues. But in general, the sort of decoupling from Russia has firmly uh, occurred. And the solidarity shown by the Europeans uh, shows that, you know, they, this was an attack not just on Ukraine uh, from a European perspective, but an attack on Europe. What do you think is holding Ukraine back from actually being invited to join NATO, be getting into the EU. What, what at this point is, you know, initially, of course, Ukraine couldn't or we couldn't let them in because of the corruption, et cetera. Now they've proven themselves to be, you know, an astonishingly good fighting force, a resilient society with strong leadership, cleaning up corruption. What do you think the track trends towards when it comes to bringing them into NATO? So I think... I, I think, look, Ukraine has demonstrated that this is not only a country that belongs in these organizations in the EU and NATO, but it's a country that the NATO and the EU should want in uh, because it, it brings so much to the table. That being said, the major issue is still the issue that Ukraine had pre-war, pre uh, pre-February 2022. It's that it has Russians on its territory. It is in a state of war with Russia. So if, if you bring Ukraine into NATO, well, guess what? That means the United States is at war with Russia. And that has uh, been one of the red lines of the Biden administration, I think rightfully so, that we don't want to uh, get into a war with Russia. They still have the largest nuclear arsenal that could wipe out Washington, D.C. in 30 minutes. So that is, I think, the, the major limiting factor. And that will be one of the key challenges is how does this war end? Does this war end or does it end? But can it, does it sort of, uh, can Ukraine get to a point where it has borders that it can recognize, it can say that hostilities are over, and then ter fully turn its attention westward? Now, this is where I think Russia it has totally in its interest to just maintain a frozen conflict, to never have this war be, to never have let this war end, to always claim parts of Ukrainian territory. And that could really get in the way of membership of, of NATO and the EU. The one other thing I should say about the EU that's important, I think, for Americans to understand is that this is not like joining NATO. This is like Mexico joining the United States. And if you were to think about it in that way, then you have to change all of Mexican law to adapt to U.S. law. You have to change all these regulations, all these. It, it is, you know, it, I mean, it's not quite as extensive as that because the EU hasn't been around as long, but it is incredibly extensive. And then it also requires EU to reform itself. And this is where I think we haven't really paid enough attention, is that when you let 
when a country comes in, when, when the EU expanded to bring in Poland and the Baltic states and others, it had to change how it did business. It's sort of like reforming the Senate rules or reforming the filibuster, reforming where money goes and, and voting rights and privileges and other things like that. It requires reform of the treaty, constitutional reform. And that's where there's going to be real division. And the biggest obstacle, frankly, are Ukraine's biggest advocates, countries like Poland and the Baltic states that don't want to, to, to reopen the treaties, while countries like France, Italy, and others have been quite open to it. So this is going to be a dual track process where Ukraine has to reform, but then the EU also has to get, get going and start having these conversations about a new potential treaty and letting not just Ukraine in, but also some of these Western Balkan countries that have made real progress, but have been stuck on the outside. It really does feel like a frozen conflict and a forever war. So given that, you know, under the Biden administration, the United States has sent nearly 25 billion in security assistance to Ukraine. Realistically, how long do you think this amount of aid will last before the United States is faced with sending more money to Ukraine? And do we have the capacity to continue to do this? So I think the answer is we 100% have the capacity to do this. I think we do need to understand how unprecedented the actions of the last year were. To provide more than $25 billion in military aid is really unfathomable. I worked this account while at the State Department and the Obama administration. I mean, it's truly remarkable what, what has occurred. That isn't just the Biden administration. That is also Congress in a bipartisan way passing supplemental appropriations for Ukraine and then giving the president the authority to just simply take equipment from the U.S. military and send it to Ukraine. The president has had that authority but only at $100 million a year, and now it's at 14.5. If you think about that, it means that you can just take huge stocks of equipment and send it and get stuff there quickly. The challenge now is that you're going to have, you have a Republican Congress, which is, I think overall this Congress is probably 85%, 90% in support of more money for Ukraine. However, Kevin McCarthy's party, the Speaker of the House, is divided on this, and the question is whether he will bring a bill forward for new supplemental funding. I am skeptical of that, and I think what the administration needs to start doing is start thinking about how it can use uh, its pots of money that it has more creatively. And when you think about the defense budget, it's around more than $800 billion. Well, the Pentagon can reallocate some of that money, then you need congressional approval for that, but that's of the congressional committees where there's Republican support, so you can move money around to keep supporting Ukraine. The issue is that it's just going to be more difficult. There's going to be more bureaucratic sand in the gears. There's going to be more trade-offs between perhaps the Indo-Pacific and Europe or other theaters. Money has to come from somewhere. Right now, it's just been money has been put on top of the current budget. So we're going to be able to keep supporting Ukraine. It's going to take more political will bureaucratically. And so I think we're going to have to look to the Europeans, frankly, to step up a bit more to allocate more funding for Ukraine to really get their defense industries going. They've, everyone's committed to spend more on defense to hit that 2% goal. But what we really need is huge pots of money that can really go to you know, buying more uh, artillery, buying more artillery shells that can get that to, to Ukraine. And I think that's where we really need to have a, a, a frank conversation with the Europeans, say, we might struggle, and I hope we don't, but if we do, you all need to really get your defense industries going. And that's where this is going to be a real contest of. Can we maintain Ukraine uh, in the same rate that Russia is maintaining its forces? 
And, you know, of course, the administration would much rather have bipartisan support in Congress as a whole for sending aid to Ukraine rather than moving around money administratively and doing it that way. So they want bipartisan support. But the question is, is how long will the bipartisan support hold? The second thing I would ask is, is our colleagues, uh, Seth Jones and Mark Kansian and, and Cynthia Cook and others have come out with a really important report called Empty Bins, which talks about how we in the United States, by sending all this artillery, by sending all this equipment, we're putting our, our own national security somewhat at risk if we don't ramp up our defense industry. What do you think is going to happen in that regard? Is the industry and the government really getting the message that this is something that needs to be done? I'm not sure. And I think part of the problem is that we have industry that needs to get contracts before they start building. And this is not it, – it, this is sort of – the defense industry is, is a market-based industry, but it works differently than other – other in industrial sectors because the only buyer can be governments uh, for its equipment. So it doesn't, you know, it doesn't sort of look at where market demand is going and then just say, we need to ramp up ahead of those orders coming. It's not like a car company in that, that sense of anticipating what the, you know, electric vehicle market will be three years out. They need and we're, not and we're not selling Lorazms to the Ford Motor Company, for instance. Right, we're, right, it right. Goes to the United States, it goes to the government. Right. So what they do is say, okay, we'll build this, but you have to give us the money, and then we start building it. Because if we build this and no one buys it, then it's just a, it's all a, a, a waste. And so there's huge issues. There's big issues on the U.S. side, but there's even bigger issues on the European side. And this is where the you know not only does Europe have kind of a fractured defense industry. There isn't really a European defense industrial base. There's a lot of little European, there's lots of European countries have their own defense companies, but this isn't sort of a cross-sector industrial landscape. And so what that means is a lot of these industries have also not had this big European market to sell their equipment to. So if you're an American defense company, you always have the US uh, defense industry, you always have the Pentagon. But if you're France or Germany or the Dutch, you don't necessarily have this big European defense market. So most of what they're selling is for uh, export. So this is, you know, and Europe has not been focused on conventional warfare. Like us, they've been focused on expeditionary operations over the last 20 years. So there's been a lot of atrophy in European defense industrial base. So they not only need the contracts, uh, and they need huge contracts to come in to ramp up the, the spending, but it's also going to take them a bit longer to develop those factories, to build out those factories. Their, their, their base is now much lower. But what we haven't quite seen are those contracts coming in. And this is where it's sort of a problem that, all, that Europe doesn't actually work together when it comes to defense. They, they coordinate their forces through NATO. But when it comes to defense procurement, there isn't really a quarterback. And yes, there's coordination efforts at NATO. This is where the EU is trying to play more of a role to incentivize cooperation. But it's really hard. And we have always been skeptical of the EU playing a role here. I think we should drop that skepticism because the thing the EU has demonstrated it can do is integrate. And this is what we, I think, need to start seeing on the European side. And hopefully uh, there's, there's more money that can, can start getting these production line, lines going. So, you know, just as an example, BAE, British Aerospace, is a big defense company, but it doesn't necessarily have relationships with German defense companies in the way our defense industrial base all clicks together. Right. And, and what we're seeing is right now, 
uh, if you're a country like Poland and you've given away a lot of your old Russian Soviet tank fleet and you're like, okay, well, I'm worried about the Russians. I need tanks. What you do is you go and look at the market and you say, okay, the Americans have Abrams. It's going to take them a while. Well, we'll buy some Abrams. But hey, the Koreans have tanks. We'll buy from Korea. But what you're not seeing is that real investment in the European defense industry because a lot of the European defense products or, or you know, tanks or vehicles aren't ready to go. They're more in design stage because they haven't gotten those big contracts. So in some ways, the demand to fill the empty bins quickly actually further depletes the European defense industrial base, which then makes everything sort of worse for them. So it's a real dilemma that we really need to look at um, closely because U.S. plays a role in this, frankly, because when we sell arms to Europe, and I've been part of this at the State Department, what we're also doing is depriving a European defense company from a contract. Now, that may be beneficial. The U.S. equipment is amazing. However, when we look at the lines overall, it's good to have the French being able to produce air defense like the Patriots. So, so we can, can really ramp up as an alliance as needed. And what we're seeing is not only are we struggling with our empty bins, but man, the Europeans, you know, there's really nothing in there. And, and they have a real problem in trying to re rebuild this and need to really, I think, work together more collaboratively to do so. Now, what about Russia? You know, are they running out of weapons? I, you know, there's been reports they're running out of artillery. There's been reports that they're leaning on North Korea and Iran for equipment. What's the status of that in Russia? How is Russia going to keep up if they're planning on fighting a forever war? Yeah, and this is, I think, one of the big X factors and challenges. It looks like, you know, Russia is starting to run a bit short of uh, in artillery in particular. You know, in the summer, it used a ton of artillery. And its way of war fighting is sort of just, it's, it's going to slowly march and just, you know, carpet bomb uh, with artillery, whatever is in front of it. With, and this is, you know, dumb munitions just being, being fired. And they, you know, the whole way of war is to just expend artillery. It now looks like they're, they're having some shortages. They're having some challenges. We've seen them go to North Korea and some other places. For artillery, I think the big X factor here is China. China thus far has not been willing to provide lethal weapons to Russia. What we are seeing is an increase in uh, in exports to Russia from China, which are likely products that are just on the right side of the sanctions line, that are more commercial oriented. But we haven't seen China, you know, open its stocks and start providing Russia with artillery and other lethal weapons. That, I think, is a big X factor in this war, because if they were to provide that, then essentially Russia has kind of an endless supply. We are also seeing Russia really deplete its tank stocks. Now, it likely has lots of tanks in reserve. I mean, this is the whole Russian way of war fighting is that you build all these tanks, they're sitting there. Then if when, you know, NATO invades, then you're sort of ready to call everybody up. So they likely have lots of tanks and lots of vehicles still so they can maintain this war for a long time. Yet they are going to have to husband their resources and probably fight a little bit differently than they would, you know, perhaps want to uh, and than they had maybe last summer. So, Max, China really is an X factor. Do you believe they're going to continue to stay silent on this war or will they eventually speak out against Russia? And is it in their interest for this war to continue or not? It's hard to tell from the outside. Yeah. I, so I, I my, my view of this is I think Vladimir Putin has to be very uh, annoyed with Xi Jinping. You know, right before the invasion last February, Putin was one of the few world leaders to go to the Olympics. 
And they uh, made an agreement with China to have a, a, a partnership with no limits. Clearly looks like there's been limits on that partnership. I mean, just imagine if we had uh, penned an agreement with a country, then found ourselves in, in, this, in this terrible war, and then we asked for help and they said no. I think we'd be quite annoyed. And so I think there is some annoyance in the, in the Kremlin that has not been reported, that has not been expressed. But I think there's also hope in the Kremlin that China changes. Now, I think we have to have this in context when we look at European leaders starting to, I think, play footsie with the Chinese a little bit more. We see Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Europe uh, meeting with European officials. It looks like Macron and the EU high representative Borrell are going to maybe go to Beijing at some point in this, this year. We saw Chancellor Schultz go to, go to Beijing. I think obviously there's uh, clear economic interests that the Europeans have to maintain economic ties. And I think we want to uh, be sure to tell them, hey, you need to be nervous about how uh, integrated you are with the Chinese economy. But I also think there's an element here of we want China, we want to sort of have China be believe that relations are getting better such that China knows that there's a, a real cost should they change course and support Russia in the war. And, you know, I don't think that's a dumb strategy. It's sort of hard to articulate publicly. I don't think we're going to see pronouncements of that kind, that the Europeans are playing a double game. And who knows, maybe they're not. But I think it could have that, that same effect of, of maybe keeping China, you know, making it to China decide it's not in its interest to really support Russia all out. Now, you know, we have a lot of balloons in the air, so to speak, with China. <laughs> what is our what is our situation with China over this war? Are we what are we saying to the Chinese to try to get their their help in ending this war, if anything? Well, I think there was a lot of back channels to the Chinese last summer and fall when Putin was really waving around his nuclear arsenal and threatening nuclear strikes, threatening the use of tactical nuclear weapons. There's a lot of loose rhetoric from the Kremlin. And I, you know, we expressed our dismay directly to the Kremlin about that. But I think importantly, also engaged the Chinese, engaged the Indians and said, hey, you have a relationship with this guy. Tell him to knock it off. And I don't know if that was the trigger for them to knock it off. I think they independently were, you know, thought this loose nuclear talk was not helpful for global stability. But it is pretty clear that she and... And Modi both uh, told Putin, both somewhat publicly and, and privately, that the nuclear threats that he was making were irresponsible. And we haven't really seen them since. Now, there could be other reasons for that. Russia could, could have been testing to see if that would break European resolve. It saw that it didn't, and then it just said this isn't worth it. But I think that's an area where using, chi you know, China doesn't want this conflict to, to, to spiral out of control. Uh, I think it wants it to end and it wants Russia to come out of this fairly stable. But it's also not looking to, I think, really get its hands super dirty into this war. And also knows that it has certain limits on what it can and cannot tell Putin. That just as if Putin were to try to, to, try to tell Xi, hey, the South China Sea or something about Vietnam, the Chinese wouldn't, I think, take that very well. And so there's, you know, limits to how, how, how far they're going to push. Max, this has been incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and giving us some real insight into what's going on in Ukraine on this one year anniversary. Thank you, Andrew. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, 
China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 